Hello, and welcome back to our discussion of Fyodor Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. Today, we have another detour section. After following with bated breath the adventures of Dmitry Karamazov from his wild excursion out to try and make money at the 11th hour, all the way to his uh, investigation and his arrest, we now leave him entirely, and we take another opportunity to spend some time with Alyosha. Um, but weirdly, this is not from the perspective of Alyosha, as we've seen with other Alyosha chapters up until this point. We have a total left turn here. Uh, we're nearly, like, two-thirds of the way through the novel, possibly even more than two-thirds of the way through the novel at this point, and Dostoevsky is not done throwing curveballs at us. Um, we are introduced to yet another completely new character from completely out of the blue, and this is the focus of this entire section. Um, and what's more, the character that we are introduced uh, to here, Kolya Kresotkin, has, is not even a grown-up. He's a kid. Um, we are suddenly sort of like torn away from the main plot and everything that's been going on with it to take another look at Snegirov's family and the whole subplot with uh, Ilyusha that we were introduced to in former chapters, um, who Alyosha kind of took a pet interest in and in his own sort of detour from the main plot quite a while ago. Um, and Kolya is apparently Ilyusha's school friend. Um, Il Kolya is apparently the kid who Ilyusha stabbed with the penknife um, because he was being taunted so mercilessly about his father's whisk broom um, when Dmitri like dragged him out of the out of the restaurant out of the tavern and like beat him for all to see shaming Ilyusha and sort of destroying Snegiryov's family. Um, importantly too we should notice that this left turn accompanies a wild left turn in time as well. Um, Dostoevsky up until this point like Everything that we've read in this novel so far, with the exception of the introductions, has occurred over the course of basically an entire week. And that's it. Like, one week from the time that everybody congregated at the monastery and, you know, this great scandal occurred between um, Fyodor Karamazov, the, the paterfamilias, and his... Uh, the Elder Zosima, the the other monks like Father Pacey were, you know, very offended when he started accusing them of, of misconduct. Um, we've seen, you know, Dmitri beat his father like the day after this occurs. Um, Alyosha sort of bustling about and trying to set things right with Katerina Ivanovna the same day and the, the day that follows. Um, and then Elder Zosima died that night, like two Two days after the episode at the monastery, this father Zosima died, and it's only a couple of days after that that Alyosha and Dmitri both have their fateful evenings um, where they sort of come to their new revelation and, and appreciate the, the world and their lives for something, something else. So all of this within, you know, less than a week in all likelihood, in only four to five days. Um, and now, all of a sudden, it's three months later. Uh, we have, we start by, with the introduction, it is the beginning of October, we had 11 degrees of frost, and with that came sheet ice. Like, we're in a new season, we're in a new chapter of everybody's lives, a lot has changed in the couple of months that have occurred entirely off-screen here. Um, and we don't get to see what has changed for our main characters. Like, we do get to see Alyosha, Kolya, in visiting Ilyusha, largely at Alyosha's behest. Um, 
does in fact see Alyosha and we catch a glimpse of him there, but it's secondary. Like, Alyosha shows up for only one and a half chapters of this whole passage. Um, we really do get a complete tangent here. We don't know what has happened to Ivan. We don't know what has happened to Dimitri at this point. All we know is now we're going to look at some kids again. Um, but this is a heck of a look. Like, Kolya Krasotkin, despite being this 11th hour character who we've never met before, who, who seems to have only this tangential relationship to this secondary plotline, is every bit as richly realized and carefully depicted here as any of the other characters that we've run into. Um, and you have to wonder why. Um, why would Dostoevsky sort of sideline his entire novel in order to give us this very careful description of this totally new and independent character? Um, but part of it is because Kolya ties into the main themes and the main ideas of the Brothers Karamazov in some fascinating ways. Um, notice, first of all, Kolya's situation. Um, Kolya is the orphaned son, so to speak, of the, like, village official. Um, Krasotkin is apparently, like, the head of the town, either in some, like, governing or, or mayoral uh, relationship. Um, he died a long time ago, um, like, ten, nearly ten years ago at this point. And thus, you know, he's still sort of regarded as the official of the town, but nonetheless, he's been dead for a long time. So you kind of have to wonder what the whole town situation actually is at this point. You kind of have to wonder if this is a town that's largely been abandoned um, by the sort of central government of Moscow and St. Petersburg. Like, you'll notice, it takes Ivan a whole long time to get to Moscow, and when he finally does come back, it's obvious that a lot of time has passed. We're clearly looking at some pretty backwoods province here, um, as we've mentioned before. So you get the sense that, like, this is a town that's been without leadership for a long time. So or the, the actual leaders of the town are landowners, like Fyodor Karamazov, like um, poor Mrs. Kokolov, uh, like these sort of random characters who seem to sort of wander in and out of the pages of this novel. Um, Kolya is, therefore, a high-ranking kid. Like, he doesn't actually have leadership responsibilities. Obviously, his only responsibilities are to, you know, go to school and hang out with other kids roughly his age, and apparently younger, since he likes to do, likes to do that. Um, his mother, his, his widowed mother, is apparently, like, important in the town. She obviously is not suffering from poverty or anything. She's doing quite all right, uh, having inherited the money from her husband. Um... Like, to the point that we see that she does, in fact, own this fairly large household and that they have multiple tenants, um, like, families living under their same roof and just sort of walled-off apartments. Um, this was very common in, you know, especially in St. Petersburg and Moscow, where, like, uh, housing is so difficult to come by. Um, many... Uh, Many people who owned, like, lavish apartments or an entire floor of a building uh, would, in fact, rent out to tenants um, if they were on reduced to hard times. You can see that here in the provinces, we're doing the same thing. Um, if, in fact, you know, I have this big manor house because I used to be the wife of this major official, but, you know, I've fallen on hard times, my husband is dead, no money is coming in, then probably the best bet for me is to rent out certain rooms and, and collect some income that way, keep things afloat. Um, but notice how all of this informs who Kolya is. 
Um, Koi is, at this point, 13 going on 14. He repeatedly emphasizes to anyone who asks and gets a little offended about it um, that he is two weeks from being 14 years old, so he's practically 14. Um, we're looking at a ninth grader, but a, a sort of young ninth grader as these as these things go. Um, so he's kind of a high schooler, but not really yet. He is still a kid in, a, in many ways. Um, and we see that he is very much transitioning like, this is very much his defining characteristic. He is, on the one hand, hanging out and spending a lot of his time with the boys who are younger than he is. Um, like, he himself had sort of taken Ilyusha under his wing when Ilyusha was getting picked on by other kids. Um, and sort of, like, he beat them up, and now he is Ilyusha's protector, and Ilyusha is really, like, excited and attached to him because of this kindness. Um, but at the same time, Kolya himself sees this as beneath him, and Kolya is, is sort of, like, recognizes that he can act this way out of magnanimity. Um, he doesn't have to do this, he, he does not feel any obligation to do this, no, on the contrary, he does it because it amuses him to do this. Um, it is beneath him, but, you know, we must be magnanimous, we must be, 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 be bigger than these sort of childish, you know, childish fascination with, with sort of rank and stature, um, and Kolya, you know, he, he's complicated in this, in this way. Um, he, wants to appear benevolent. He wants to be nice to people on some deep sense level that he is not willing to admit to himself, but he also is very informed by all of these big ideas. Um, and, you know, he is sort of a legend in this town among the children and even among the adults. Um, there is this weird streak in him, this rebelliousness, this sort of... Um, authority that is that surrounds him like let's actually look at some of his adventures here here in chapter one we're introduced to him um that he and his schoolboy friends very much appreciate kolya because he has like gotten one up on their teacher darden or dardanilov um and apparently dardanilov is their history teacher and he's the one who's been teaching them about, like, ancient Greece and the, you know, great world history. So all the way through ancient Rome and the medieval period, all the way up to Dostoevsky's own 19th century itself. Um, but apparently Kolya asked this particularly nasty question in Dardanilov's class, namely, who founded Troy? And Dardanilov spun off this big, winding answer about, you know, people move around, and there are these grand cultures. And really, there aren't, like, people who founded Troy. It's way too far in the history for us to be able to tap down, like, who exactly was what. This is the answer that I would give to my students if somebody said, you know, who founded Troy. Um, like, I would point to the great movements of civilizations and some archaeological evidence, and, you know, like, this is too far back in history. But notice, Kolya has an answer. Like, Kolya has apparently been reading on his own time. This is one of the things that Kolya does in his spare time. Like, his father, upon dying, apparently left a bookshelf full of books. Like, one bookshelf, and it's not even that impressive. Like, we're not seeing anything too terribly impressive here. But on this bookshelf is this one book, uh, Smar Smaragdov, who is apparently, like, the world history textbook in, you know, Russia, in an old textbook at that. Um, and Kolya read in there that there are, in fact, like, these certain people who founded Troy. Um, so, like, when Dardanilov gives him this winding sort of answer, um, 
you can see this is on page 518, like the whole thing is described here. And indeed, Kolya had once asked him the question, who founded Troy? To which Dardanelov only gave a general answer about peoples, their movements and migrations, about the remoteness of the times, about fable-telling. But who precisely had founded Troy? That is, precisely which persons? He could not say, and even found the question for some reason an idle and groundless one. But this only left the boys convinced that Dardanelov did not know who founded Troy. As for Kolya, he had learned about the founders of Troy and Smaragdov, whose history was in the bookcase left by his father. The upshot of it was that all the boys became interested finally in who precisely had founded Troy, but Krasotkin would not give away his secret, and the glory of his knowledge remained unshakably his own. So notice, Krasotkin is a champion to these kids for a number of reasons. First, because he is just slightly older than them. Like, notice that we've got all these 12-year-olds and 11-year-olds, kids around Oyusha's age, who are looking up to 13 going on 14 Krasotkin. And Krasotkin is a hero to them. He showed up their teacher by having this information that they don't have. We get this story about how apparently he was, like, dared by even older children. Um, and he volunteered, having done his homework, having done his research, having checked it out himself, to sit on the railroad tracks, like, with his arms tucked in while a train went by overhead. And he apparently performed this miracle, like, he actually did it. Um, and the kids are like, oh my gosh, you're so amazing, and they discover that, like, he fainted while he was under the tracks, which, yeah, I can see why that might happen. I imagine that was utterly terrifying. Um, but Krasovkin, he, he can do this. He is a big enough personality. He stands out. He is a daredevil. He is a, re a rebel. We hear about this story with the goose later on. Like, he is constantly sort of engaging in this mischievous pranks, not because, you know, it pleases him and he enjoys mischief, but rather because he wants to prove to everyone how awesome he is, um, that he warrants their reverence and their respect. He is making a stir in this town. Um, and even the adults, like notice in the chapter where he's actually walking through the town and sort of introducing himself to all of these, you know, various peasants and stuff in chapter three as schoolboy, you know, he's, he's frankly sort of impertinent with them. And people get a kick out of this. Um, like, he, he frequently makes fun of the peasants as he walks by, but sort of, like, quietly and without sort of giving away the fact that he's making fun of them so they don't pick up on it. Um, alternatively, like, we've got the, the women who, you know, they sort of, like, banter with him. So there's this scene where he's, like, passing by the tavern and he gets accosted by this tradesman. And the tradesman is acting like he's he's got some beef with Kolya. Like, this is on page 529. It's just a great little exchange here. Um, so, um, first he's, like, messing with this, this poor woman, uh, Maria. Um, but then we get, there was laughter among the other market women who were selling things from their stands next to Maria, when suddenly, from under the arcade of shops nearby, for no reason at all, an irritated man jumped out, who looked, out, who looked like a shop clerk, but a stranger not one of our tradesmen, in a long blue caftan and a visored cap. A young man with dark brown curly hair and a long, pale, slightly pockmarked face. He was somehow absurdly agitated, and at once began threatening Kolya with his fist. I know you, he kept exclaiming irritably. I know you! Kolya stared fixedly at him. He was unable to recall when, when he could have had any quarrel with this man. But he had had so many quarrels in the streets that he could not remember them all. 
So you know me? He asked ironically. I know you! I know you! The tradesman kept repeating like a fool. So much the better for you, but I am in a hurry. Goodbye. Like, notice that Koya's first action here is, oh shit, who is this guy? Like, who did I offend here? And his assumption is that he has, in fact, screwed with this person before, that he's messed with him, that there is, in fact, a legitimate cause for the tradesman's beef, even though the narrator doesn't seem to think there is. Like, the narrator says, for no reason at all, this guy jumps out and harasses Kolya. So it doesn't seem like there's actually a connection here. This could be a miscommunication or a mistake of identity. Kolya tries to shut him down. So you know me. What, it, what of it? Goodbye. And he tries to, like, walk away. But the tradesman pursues him. You're still up to your tricks, the tradesman shouted. Up to your tricks again? I know you. You're up, So you're up to your tricks again? It's none of your business, brother, what tricks I'm up to, Kolya said, stopping and continuing to examine him. None of my business, is it? That's right, it's none of your business. And whose is it? Whose? Well, whose? It's Trifon Nikitich's business now, brother, not yours. What Trifon Nikitich? The fellow stared at Kolya in foolish surprise, though still with the same excitement. Kolya solemnly looked him up and down. Have you been to the Church of the Ascension? He suddenly asked him sternly and insistently. What Ascension? Why, no, I haven't. The fellow was a bit taken aback. Do you know Sabanayev? Kolya went on, still more insistently and sternly. What Sabanayev? No, I don't know him. Devil take you then, Kolya suddenly snapped, and turning sharply to the right, quickly went his way, as if scorning even to speak with such a dolt who does not even know Sabanayev. Now, notice, as we see immediately, because, like, the people in the various trade stalls, they all start making fun of this tradesman. They see what Kolya has done, and they start doing it to him as well. Kolya doesn't know any of these people. There's no Trifon Nikitich. There's no Sabanayev. He's just making these names up out of midair to just sort of confuse this tradesperson, to, to sort of like throw him off the scent and get extricate himself from the situation. And again, all of these other tradespeople realize this, that he's just throwing names at him, and they start doing the same. No, he's not Trifon, and he's no Sabaniev either. He's Chizhov. Then we go back and forth, making up more people to sort of baffle and bewilder this poor, crazed tradesperson. So notice, Kolya's a smart guy. And he's smart for numerous reasons. He's book smart and can show up Dardanelov, mostly because he's got this one bookshelf with this limited set of books that he knows really intimately, that he has actually read very carefully. And he frequently shows off this knowledge. Like you see with Alyosha later, he frequent he quotes Condide and acts like he's just really familiar with all this literature. And there's this one issue of this one periodical that he knows by heart and he quotes it regularly. And Alyosha's like, wait, you've read that? And he's like, yeah, I've read that, and it's the only one he's ever read. Um, so on the one hand, Krasotkin is book smart, but kind of not actually intelligent, not really well read, just particularly smart about a very limited number of things. But on the other hand, he's also, like, honestly street smart. He can get himself out of tough situations. He uses his sort of authority over the children to, like, basically tyrannize over them. Um, he uses the fact that he is willing to do some crazy things, like a daredevil, to get one over on the kids that he respects and admires. On the one hand, we see Kolya is incredibly insecure and incredibly, like, uncertain of himself, incredibly vain. He wants people to think of him as an adult, as a grown-up, as somebody who's in control of the situation. And he really is, a lot of the time. But it is a show. 
Like, it is very much this facade that he's putting on himself. His knowledge is only so deep, but he definitely parades it around to make sure that everybody knows that it's there, and presumes that it's deeper than it actually is. His generosity to the other kids is very much put upon. Like, I am going to do all of these nice things for you so you will respect me, so you will re recognize me as your benefactor, as this generous act. But on the other hand, there is an honesty about Kolya. Like, we see that he actually does, in fact, like spending time with the squirts, as he calls them. The two kids that he is responsible for taking care of in his mother's absence. Um, the children who, in fact, do look up with him, and there are reports, he seems to suggest. Rumors are about that he likes to play hobby horse with them. Um, and, of course, he emphasizes, well, no, I don't like playing hobby horse for its own reasons. Obviously, I'm not a child. But I do like taking care of these kids, and it is better that we do this. We, we can afford to be generous men, he sort of suggests to the children. Notice this relationship, though, this, this sort of transitional moment in his adulthood. He is very sort of self-conscious and very self-aware of the fact that he has to be an adult to these kids, while also himself actually liking to be a kid. He's not sure which side of the fence that he's on right now. And I want to emphasize this because it's such a fascinating and very insightful look on Dostoevsky's part to sort of recognize this struggle with one's own adulthood at this particular moment in time. And it is especially important for our purposes that we recognize that Kolya Krasotkin is trying to act like a grown-up, is trying to act more mature than he is, and the way that he does this for so many people, his default go-to uh, method for proving to another person that he is an adult, is quoting Candide and like imposing his knowledge on others and proving how much smarter he is than everybody around him. And notice, too that we do get hints of where Kolya is getting his information from, where he's getting this sort of attitude from. Namely, he's been hanging out with Rakuten. And I know it's been a while since we've heard anything about Rakuten. It's been a long time since Alyosha and Rakuten went to Grushenka's together. But remember that Rakuten is the, you know, young monk, this acolyte, who, like Kolya, is very much sort of trying to be knowledgeable, appearing to be knowledgeable. And, you know, we even get that sort of dismissive comment from Ivan earlier on, where, like, one day he's going to found his own paper and seem like a really smart, really important person, but at the end of the day, he doesn't have a single new idea in his head. Rakuten, as a sort of pseudo-put-upon intellectual, is the model for Kolya, who is the ultimate pseudo-put-upon intellectual. Because he doesn't know anything. He's, remember, 13 years old. He's got one bookshelf. That is the extent of his knowledge of the world and of affairs in, in the world at large. But with Rakuten's help, he knows how to, you know, make incisive quotes and, like, put people in their place, which itself should inform us. Remember, just as Kolya is being magnanimous to these little kids who really who worship the ground that he walks on, Rakuten, too, is hanging out with little kids so they'll look up to him. Like, Kolya Krasotkin is, to these little kids, the same as Rakuten is to Kolya. They're both doing the same thing. They're both specifically going out of their way to find people beneath them so they can feel good about themselves. 
Now notice, this itself is a fascinating parallel, because Rakuten's relationship to Alyosha has always been a sort of reversal as well. Alyosha, too, is hanging out with kids younger than he is. And Alyosha, too, immediately wins Kolya's respect and admiration because he, too, is well-read and because he, too, is intelligent and because he, too, is confident in control of himself. But where for Rakuten, it's all about feeling good, about sort of putting on airs and making himself feel better about his own limited knowledge by hanging out with the people who can't see through him. For Alyosha, it's honest. Alyosha actually wants to spend time with these people, actually wants to, you know, get to know these children, actually does relate to them, and actually wants to benefit them. Alyosha honestly spends time with his underlings and can comfortably spend time with those who have greater knowledge than he does. Rakuten, however, is always ashamed when he is sh shown up by Ivan or by Alyosha. He is also very brittle and self-conscious and very self-aware. Um, he also is very insecure. And notice this chapter, this whole section where we're looking at squarely at Kolya Krasatkin, very much pits Krasotkin on this exact same knife's edge. This same decision is being presented to him. He, too, in his development, is right on the cusp of manhood, right about to become an adult, and he is facing the decision, do you want to be Rakuten, or do you want to be Alyosha? Do you want to be honest, and do the things that you want to do just because you want them out of an earnest desire because it is important to you or because it is significant to you? Or are you going to do them in order to put on airs, in order to make yourself look good, in order to impress other people, in order to assuage your insecurities? Notice that when Alyosha, in fact, talks to Kolya about this, when Alyosha confronts Kolya about all of his wisdom, all of his education, he asks... he talks about it as though it is a corrupting influence. That here is this otherwise good kid who has been wrecked, corrupted by all of these external influences, by all of these aspirations to knowledge and to refinement. Kolya is in danger. Kolya is theoretically being corrupted. A good soul being wrecked by all of these ideas and conversations and discussions and airs. All of that is messing with his psyche. As much as Kolya is the secondary character out of the blue that doesn't have anything to do with the events of the novel, Kolya is the distillation of everything that has happened so far to Alyosha, to Rakuten, to Musov, to Ivan Karamazov. Like, he is very much this next generation looking on all of this drama between Dmitri and Ivan and uh, and Alyosha and their father, and learning from it, asking himself, who does he want to be in the future? And I think it's really telling that Dostoevsky is willing to go here. Like, just as we said with Dmitri, how, you know, on the one hand, he is a good person who just gets carried away, His, he flies off the handle, just as we said that, like, Dostoevsky never lets us forget, even in his moment of redemption, that he is, in fact, guilty, that all of these people's lives have been destroyed by Dmitri's carelessness, including, most importantly, Snigiryov himself. We see Dmitri can be a hero, but his he is also 
wrecking things. He is also breaking things. Here, too, we see Kolya Krasopkin is another potential casualty of this war, of this culture conflict between the authentic Russianness and the Europeanizing influences of all of these big ideas that are possessing people and, and sort of causing them to behave in these wild and crazy ways. Kolya is also watching from the sidelines, as are so many other kids. And notice Dostoevsky like, specifically puts the words of some of the pamphleteers, especially his enemies, into the mouth of Kolya. Um, Kolya quotes the especially liberal periodicals. Quote, Kolya at one point quotes Belinsky, who Belinsky wasn't exactly an ideological enemy of, of Dostoevsky's. In fact, Belinsky supposedly discovered Dostoevsky when he wrote Poor Folk. Um, but it's important to Dostoevsky to note that as much as all of these scholars, all of these you know, totally disenfranchised intellectuals, all of these pseudo-academics who can't find a place in the world, all of these over-educated Russian students, they're all having the, these feuds, these disagreements in public by publishing all of these, like, periodicals, by, you know, writing for Notes for the Fatherland, and writing all of these, you know, crazy ideas, and, you know, having this discussion in the St. Petersburg and Moscow circulars, as much as that seems to be just a bunch of academics feuding their, their ideas, Dostoevsky notes that it's not just the academics who are being informed here. No, people are watching. This is a public discussion. And when we say that it is a public discussion, we don't just mean adults who, you know, should be smart enough to be able to fend for themselves in this situation, whether or not they actually can. Like, look at poor Madame Koklikov, whose ideas are filled with nonsense. But also the kids. They're looking up at their adults, they're reading these periodicals too, and they're doing it without context. They're frequently getting these unfiltered ideas without the help of understanding the discussion at large. Like Dostoevsky, who himself has read all of this stuff, who knows who the various players are and how they sort of inform one another and who's on what side and why they believe what they do and you know why they emphasize certain things and therefore why you can disregard them, Kolya doesn't. Koli is just looking on wide-eyed as people are dropping these supposedly knowledgeable bombs, which aren't in fact all that knowledgeable at all. He's looking on and watching the racketins of this world, these sort of callous, indifferent publishers who do not actually care about their ideas, and he's just swallowing it, believing that it is in fact the way to live one's life. And that's really dangerous. Like, Dostoevsky is very much doing a think-of-the-children kind of moment here, but he's based in truth. On some level, we're having the same discussion now. Like, again, I mentioned before that I, I have always sort of thought it worthwhile to compare the 19th century Russian, like, pamphleteering milieu with the age of the internet. Um, that we, too, live in a time where there are all of these young, educated people with too much time on their hands and not enough education to actually back up what they're talking about, sort of sending their ideas into the Internet for anyone to sort of pick up on and swallow. Like, I am very conscious of that myself. I know for a fact that I've got listeners who are coming from all sorts of different backgrounds, that, you know, I myself am undereducated for a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about. I am... A, long distance away from being a Dostoevsky scholar. 
And on some level, I like talking about this. I, I do want to say my piece and be heard. I do think I have valuable insights to contribute. But I also recognize that, honestly, like if you really want to study Dostoevsky, if you really do want to read The Brothers Karamazov and get like all, of, all that you can out of it, I'm not the guy you should be listening to. Um, I'm sure that there are other legit Russian scholars who are on the internet and who can give you an even better look than I, uh, than I can. Um, but I also know that many of them are extremely boring, and many of them are expensive to listen to, and therefore there is room in this crazy universe for me to ply my trade. Um, but I also am very careful about what it is that I say at the end of the day. Like, as much as these are very off-the-cuff discussions, and I do occasionally make some fairly, you know, idiotic uh, and half-baked uh, insights or, or observations, I do recognize that I don't know who's listening. Like, I have seen the demographics on Spotify, however honest that they are, and can va vaguely judge that my main listener base runs between the ages of 20 and 29. Um, so they are younger than me, looking up at me the way that Kolya does at Rakuten, and, you know, the kids look up at Kolya. Um, but nonetheless, like, I know that I am at least lis being listened to primarily by adults. Um, I hope... <laughs> that not that many children are in fact listening to this. Um, and if they are, I hope that I have been giving enough context, giving enough sort of a, appreciation for this material that at the end of the day, I'm not, you know, instilling bad ideas. Um, I am not, you know, promoting immor immorality. Like, that's one of the things that Dostoevsky is so keenly aware of here. Like, in the 19th century, there are a lot of crazy ideas going about, a lot of ideas that are in fact challenging traditional morality. Um, like, for years at this point, Dostoevsky has been engaged in a sort of feud with a writer by the name of Chernyshevsky. Um, and Chernyshevsky is very much a sort of Marxist materialist of the most potent stripe. Like, this is a guy who thinks that all art and literature is nonsense, and that instead we should be devoting our efforts to making, you know, more food and boots and, you know, real material advantages that will actually profit the nation and the people. Um, and there is, you know, an argument to be had there. Like, for sure, you, you can make the claim. Um, but Chernyshevsky goes about it with such dismissiveness, such sort of antagonism, that it's really hard to see, like, to see this as being a, a truly beneficial argument. He has the courage of his convictions, to be sure, but the, those convictions seem to be dehumanizing in a really profound sense. Like, it is going to be the Chernyshevskys of the world who win out, seeing as the Russian Revolution is going to take place and it's going to be communist as far as the eye can see. But most people would argue that that's not great for Russia. That ultimately, the whole communist revolution, much as it did sort of throw out an old, decrepit monarchy that was very much on its last legs, I really don't think we're going to see Lenin and Stalin and Khrushchev and Putin as, you know, the, the better alternative to the czars. Um, like, the 19th century lineup of czars are, are a pretty mixed bunch. Alexander I was strong, but not necessarily all that great. Nicholas I was kind of a mess, and Alexander II at least had pretty good ideas, even if his execution wasn't all that great. But uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily, like, quickly trade them for Putin and Khrushchev and Stalin. Like, good grief. Um, 
suffice it to say, communism in its theoretical form might have some really good ideas, but I wouldn't want to go, you know, talking about how great it is without qualification to an audience that might not understand all the context here and might not be able to appreciate exactly what I was saying. I'm not going to start pulpit pounding unless I think that there's a really good reason for it and that that message is something that anyone can pick up and swallow. And I think Dostoevsky is doing that as well. Like, notice, as much as Dostoevsky does have some really strong convictions here, as much as I've argued throughout this uh, series that Dostoevsky is promoting his own sort of Christian agenda, that, like, the centerpiece of this novel is not Ivan's ruminations on the Grand Inquisitor or even I'm, Ivan's comeuppance with the devil later to come, but rather the Elder Zosima's teachings about, you know, the corn of wheat that falls to the ground and gives forth fruit, and how Alyosha and Dmitri and many of the characters in this novel live out that life. Um, at the end of the day, I have praised love and kindness way earlier than I have, you know, really cool, forward-thinking ideas like what we find in Candide or what Kolya has picked up on through his sort of scattershot reading here. Um, Dostoevsky, too, you'll note, never presents these ideas without careful contextualization. And yet... So many writers, so many scholars pick up on the controversial ideas in Dostoevsky without recognizing their context. I mean, in this very book, this idea of Ivan's, that since there is no God, everything is permitted, becomes the cornerstone of Sartrean existentialism. Um, the Grand Inquisitor, as I've lamented, is frequently taught as a book all by itself. Um, and that's painful to me. <laughs> like, don't get me wrong, Dostoevsky, you know, does have his big ideas, and some scholars tend to think that he is, in fact, behind them. But Dostoevsky never, ever presents them without contextualization. The only times that he does present big ideas without contextualization tends to be in the writer's diary, and he tends to be really careful about what sort of morality he propounds there. We, again, historically can look back and see prejudices, racism, nationalism running through those ideas, but he believed that that was good for anyone to read, where the things that he was willing to entertain in his novels frequently weren't. And therefore, here we have Kolya, who is very much this sort of object lesson in what an unchecked academic idealism can do to actual people, kids looking on wide-eyed and trying to just understand how the world works, or bad-faith seminarians who are sort of swallowing this stuff in order to look good, or, by contrast, guys like Smerdyakov who are out just to watch the world burn. Dostoevsky recognizes that what you say, what you throw into the universe, what you say in a podcast, will be taken out of context will inevitably grow to have a life beyond what you can control. And therefore, you've got to be real careful about what you say and how you say it. Or who knows what the consequences might turn out to be. Kolya is a clear reminder here to the Alyoshas, the Dimitris, and the Ivans of the world that people are watching. Your actions will have unintended consequences. The next generation is looking on. And therefore, act carefully. Your legacy is going to be in people like Kolya Krasotkin. But that's very much just one side of what's going on here. 
obviously, Kolya as character is the dominant personality throughout this, and we see him sort of going back and forth between his honest, loving generosity and his desire to, you know, impress everybody with his erudition and intellect and daredevil-ness. Um, but on the other hand, we need to also point out what is going on with Ilyusha and with the Stengaryov family in, at this point in time. And if anything, things have gotten worse, like dramatically worse. Um, in the three months that have transpired since the last time we saw the Snegiryovs, Ilyusha has gotten sick, like real sick. He is consumptive. Um, and at this point, throughout this novel, or throughout this section, it is very much emphasized by the doctors, by Alyosha, by this new Moscow specialist who, like, shows up with his fancy decorations. All of them are pretty convinced he's beyond hope. Ilyusha is going to die. And that sucks. Like, this is a real hard wake-up call here. When last we saw Snegaryov, we had high hopes for what was going to happen. We were hoping that Snegaryov was going to accept some money, which turns out that he did, in fact. Like, the second time that Katerina Ivanovna offered him the money, he did, in fact, accept it for the good of his family. And apparently Katerina Ivanovna, in the meantime, has been making regular visits to the Snegaryov household and trying to sort of change their fortunes. She has taken them under, the, under her wing, in short. Um, and they're doing, in some ways, a lot better than they were. Um, the one daughter has gone back to the university, as we hoped. The other daughter is receiving medical attention, even if she's not getting exactly all of the attention that she deserves. Um, the mother seems to be in fairly high spirits, despite the fact that she is still obviously troubled in many ways. And Captain Snegiryov himself also seems to be in good shape. Like, if anything, he has high hopes for Ilyusha throughout, despite the fact that Ilyusha is struggling so much. But importantly, it's really important for us to note what Alyosha is doing here. Um, the fact that Alyosha has been making a concerted effort to sort of reconcile each of Ilyusha's school friends, the same kids who were throwing rocks at him before. Alyosha is sort of browbeating and guilting them in to coming and seeing Ilyusha, spending time with him, and reconciling them to Ilyusha. And at this point, most of the kids have. Kolya is the exception. Kolya Kresotkin has been determinedly staying away, and has even said, like, if Alyosha ever actually comes to Kolya's door, he will never receive him, and he'll never go to see Alyosha, and the, the, the whole discussion is closed there. So Alyosha realizes that he's got to tread real carefully with Kolya Kresotkin, that he cannot just sort of browbeat him the way that he's been browbeating the younger kids. And on the one hand, that's okay. Alyosha has sort of left it up to the younger kids to do the browbeating for him. On the one hand, Alyosha has in fact dispatched them from time to time to go check on Nikolia and sort of remind him that he needs to go visit Alyosha. But on the other hand, they are starting to do it just of themselves. The kids have started to adopt Alyosha and are very concerned for his welfare at this point in time. And we notice, too, that the defining incident, the, the thing that sort of sent Ilyusha off the rails here, has changed. Apparently, there was more going on in Ilyusha's mind than just the disgrace of his father, though that was sort of the tinder point to the whole thing. Apparently, Alyosha has discovered, and Ilyusha has revealed, that just before... Um, the Snegiryov incident where Dmitri dragged him out of the tavern, pulled him by the 
the beard, and, you know, all the kids started making fun of both Ilyusha and Snegaryov for his whisk broom. Apparently, mere days before, Smerdyakov, of all people, apparently tricked Ilyusha into giving this dog, Zhuchka, um, a piece of bread with a pin in it? Like... We should, de like, if this is horrifying to you, it absolutely should be. And it is definitely presented as horrifying to us as, as well. Notice that, like, Dostoevsky has chosen for this incident a particularly childish, but a particularly horrible way of tormenting an animal. Uh, that, like, Smerdyakov has sort of goaded Ilyusha into giving this dog the bread with the pin in it, and the dog obviously took it and immediately starts squealing and running away. And, like, Ilyusha is beside himself because he thinks he's killed the dog. And for good reason. Like, a dog swallowing a pin is probably a death sentence. And virtually everybody in this novel who has heard about this incident is like, yeah, that dog is dead. And Ilyusha killed it. Now notice, this incident is really significant to us for a few reasons. First off... Obviously, this would have been traumatizing to, to Ilyusha, and is certainly the reason why he is so upset, so traumatized, why he can't recover from this illness. Um, it is presented to us as, yeah, the, the whisk broom incident was bad, but at the end of the day, it's this incident, the incident with Zhuchka, that really is at the heart of what's causing Ilyusha so much pain. Um, second, we have to note that this is why Kolya Krasotkin abandoned Ilyusha. Like, Ilyusha apparently told Kolya about this, like, obviously upset, very much regretting what he had done, and Kolya's like, well, that was really bad form, and I'm not gonna hang out with you anymore. And remember, Kolya was the person who was protecting Ilyusha from the other kids, and the other kids were respecting Ilyusha specifically because Kolya was spending time with him. So as a result, now the kids are turning on him, and then this whisk broom incident happens, and now that's this whole thing, and now the kids are tormenting Ilyusha because of this, and having brought to this point over like the same three days that this novel sort of opened up with, like, it's no coincidence art artistically, but it is total coincidence in every other which way, that apparently the same events at the beginning of this novel are also the events that sort of brought Ilyusha to this horrific, sort of traumatizing, you know, turning point. Ilyusha has hurt this dog, Kolyub abandons him, his father is disgraced, and now all the kids are throwing rocks at him. Finally, he does, in fact, stab Kolya Krasatkin. Like, Kolya reaches out to him, he kind of pities Ilyusha for the fact that he abandoned him in this time of need. He reaches out, and Ilyusha's response is to stab him. Now let's talk about this. Ilyusha is traumatized, seriously traumatized. He's had a bad few days. Um, and in these bad few days, he, feel, he feels guilt, he feels disgrace, he feels shame. He has been awfully treated by all the people he thought was his friends. Like, he really has had his life destroyed. It has fallen apart in front of his eyes. And it would be wrong of us to point to any single one incident as being the cause here. All of this contributed. The fact that he killed the dog definitely is a contributing factor. The fact that Kolya abandons him is definitely a contributing factor. The fact that Dmitri shamed his father is definitely a contributing factor. But notice the people who are in charge of this. The two major contributors, the two people who should have known better, 
are Dmitri on the one hand for shaming his father and Smerdyakov on the other. And Smerdyakov is just messing with him. Smerdyakov traumatizes Ilyusha pretty directly here for no better reason than it was fun to do it. And we need to sort of recognize this. Like, I've mentioned before that Smerdyakov is borderline nihilist in the way that he sort of talks about his philosophy and the, the sort of discussion that he had about the, you know, supposed martyr who's, like, died rather than convert to, to Islam. The fact that Smerdyakov very much makes light of that and even, like, mocks this person because he thinks that there was a better way out of the situation, that it isn't even theologically sound. We've also seen him absolutely just sort of, like, uh, in the scene where, uh, I think it's Alyosha who sort of, like, eavesdrops on him while he's wooing this, this girl. You know, he obviously doesn't have any respect for her and is very much a nihilist in the sense that he's just doing it for his own pleasure and for his own gain. Here we see, for the first time, Smerdyakov sort of actively nihilistic, literally destroying this child's life just because he can. Just because he feels like it's his prerogative or something, out of sheer malice and spite. Like, notice, Smerdyakov doesn't care about either Ilyusha or Zhuchka, the dog. He just lets this transpire, encourages Ilyusha to do it. We don't get a clear sort of explanation of, of the occasion here, how exactly we go from Smerdyakov giving Ilyusha this idea to Ilyusha actually going through with it, um, it seems that Smerdyakov just sort of kind of plants the seed and then walks away, lets these events transpire. But it should give us pause as far as Smerdyakov is concerned. We still don't know what his deal is. We're not going to see, like, Smerdyakov revealed to us for a little while yet. Um, but nonetheless, everything that we learn about him suggests that Smerdyakov is just a bad dude. And remember, when Dmitri was presented with, you know, the evidence, like, oh, the door was open when Fyodor Karamazov was killed, remember that Dmitri comes to the conclusion that it was Smerdyakov who did it. Smerdyakov must therefore be the, be the murderer because I, Dmitri, didn't do it. Now, again, I think Dostoevsky has left the door open on as far as the interpretation is concerned. I don't think we yet have been given enough evidence to condemn either Dmitri or Smerdyakov. On the one hand, I think we are encouraged to look at Dmitri and say, why would he tell the truth about so many, you know, potentially self-damning evidences if, in fact, he had killed his father, and thus conclude Dmitri couldn't have, and therefore Smerdyakov must have. But at the same time, I think there is an open question there. I think Dostoevsky is working with the suspense in this novel, and we are meant to sort of question and like, not be sure at this point whether or not Dmitri is being 100% honest with us, and therefore whether Smerdyakov, in fact, killed Fyodor Karamazov or not. But this is actually pretty solid evidence as well. The fact that we are now given, in, given this insight into Smerdyakov's free time, where he's apparently willing to talk kids into killing dogs, like, that's real messed up. And we should remember that Smerdyakov himself was described earlier on as torturing animals for fun. Like, this was apparently something that he used to do when he was growing up, when he was being raised by Grigory. Um, so Smerdyakov is a bad apple here, for sure. And just as I said that, you know, people are watching, the next generation is looking on as Dmitri and Alyosha and Rak 
Rakuten are sort of engaging in their various activities. Yeah, they're watching Smerdyakov too, but where Dmitri is oblivious, Smerdyakov knows very well what he's doing. He is messing with this kid. He is traumatizing him quite actively. And due to the confluence of these events, due to the death of Zhuchka and immediately followed by Kolya abandoning him, immediately followed by his father being disgraced, immediately followed by his torment by the other kids for stabbing Krasotkin, well, now it's too late. Now Ilyusha is dead. Not yet. He's still consumptive. There is still some small shred of hope that he might recover, but as far as everybody is concerned, it is too late. The doctors say so. It seems that everybody is convinced. Now, it's significant to us because Kolya does show up today. Kolya comes, and Kolya, you know, comes to Ilyusha, and he's like, Hey, Ilyusha, how are you doing? And his heart goes out to him. Like, we get this description here, um, where, you know, at Ilyusha's bedside, Krasokin notices that he's so pale, and he's so sickly. And Ilyusha seems to have, like, turn things around with most of most of the people in his life. Like, we even get this story about how Snegaryov, like, the Captain Snegaryov, has bought him this Mastiff pup, like this dog who's going to be really awesome. Um, and Ilyusha's really excited about it insofar as he can be, and the only thing that's missing at this point is Zhuchka. Like, this is the one thing that's still, like, stabbing into Ilyusha's mind, preventing him from getting better. First, the fact that Kolya hasn't forgiven him, and the second, the fact that Zhuchka is irrevocably dead. These are two things that Ilyusha can't get beyond. And these are the two things that are solved here in this moment. Like, Kolya shows up, and Kolya immediately feels terrible pity for poor Ilyusha. Again, because he's so sickly. Kolya didn't know it had gone this far, that it had gotten this bad. Um, and Kolya immediately forgives him. Like, the reconciliation occurs here. Like, obviously Kolya is willing to spend time with him. And then Kolya, out of an interest in the dramatics, sort of says, Nope, Zhuchka's definitely dead, but I did bring my own dog, Perevzon. And, you know, come in, Perevzon. And it turns out that Perevzon is, in fact, Zhuchka. And everything is fine. And the dog did, in fact, spit out the bread. And no, Zhuchka didn't actually die. And everything is made better. Like, Ilyusha even gets out of bed. We've seen he's, like, too weak to even speak at this point. But when Juchka shows up, Ilyusha gets out of bed and pets the dog and is, like, down on all fours, down on his hands and knees, like, realizing that this wasn't, in fact, something that happened. He didn't, in fact, kill this dog. He didn't, in fact, destroy his life the way that he thought he did. Ilyusha, on some level, is forgiven for his crimes. His guilt evaporates in this moment. It was all an illusion. Zhuchka spat out the, the needle, and now um, Krasotkin apparently adopted Zhuchka. And apparently the reason why Krasotkin hasn't come earlier is because he spent the intervening months training Zhuchka slash Perevzon, so now he can, like, roll over and play dead, and he does the trick where he, they, like, put the thing of beef on his nose, and they, he has to just stand there until finally he says, go, and, like, he takes the meat, like, it's this whole thing. He's incredibly well-trained. Like, we see, especially the way that, uh, that Kolya Krasotkin treats him, you know, he's almost a dictator in his own right to this dog. Like, he very clearly, you know, like, has trained this dog very, very well. He will not move unless Kolya Krasotkin tells him to, and when he tells him to, he moves like a shot. Um, this is an incredibly well-trained dog. A lot of time has been spent on this. But what is so tragic about this is that it 
was unnecessary and ultimately destructive. It got this far because Kolya and Krasopkin refused to come for literally months. And it got this far because Ilyusha persisted in thinking that Zhuchka was dead, because Kolya Krasopkin told all the kids that he was dead, because Kolya Krasopkin wanted to keep it a surprise. Ilyusha has been suffering for months, unnecessarily. All for this moment, when Kolya gets to prove that he is this magnanimous person and that he, you know, was actually preparing this big surprise and he's going to be the hero and he's going to show off his cannon and Mama's going to ask for the cannon. It's this whole thing. Also, Kolya can be, you know, big, magnanimous, savior person. But he doesn't save him. Like, as much as Ilyush, Ilyusha's situation has been dramatically improved, everything has been fixed at this point. His father has sort of, like, been reconciled with, the, with Alyosha and with the family, so he's no longer disgraced, and Ilyusha kind of recovers from that. Um, as much as all of the various school kids have forgiven Ilyusha, now, like, he's recovering on that level, since Kolya and since Zhuchka have not been able to make an appearance for so long out of their own pride his situation has gotten worse. The consumption has gotten worse. And it is very much implied here that as a consequence, Ilyusha is going to die. Like, notice this big professional from Moscow, this celebrated doctor, like, he shows up and he delivers his, his verdict, and it's basically like, you're going to have to do some emergency measures, which, P.S., is, like, total garbage as far as prescription is, is concerned. He's like, well, you have to take Oyusha all the way to Sicily and enjoy the very healthy vapors there, and then you're going to have to go to, like, Greece or something for the poor girl who is, you know, suffering from some other illness. Like, and, and Captain Snigorov is like, have you seen my house? Like, obviously I can't afford any of this, but this is a big, fancy Moscow doctor who's used to dealing with big, fancy clients. This didn't used to be an obstacle. And he has very little compassion for them. Um, the emphasis very much here is, yeah, Ilyusha's done. It's too far gone. And the reason that it's too far gone is because of all of these various people who have mistreated him for various reasons. Smerdyakov in tormenting him with this idea about putting the pin in the bread in the first place. Kolya for being so cold to him for so long out of a sense of pride and, you know, self-aggrandizement. Um, Dmitri, whose indifferent recklessness had ruined Ilyusha's relationship with his father for so long. Like, all of this has happened. And it's too late to fix it. Like, maybe if Kolya had come a month ago or two months ago, maybe... Ilyusha would still have a chance, but Kolya didn't. Not because of any malice, not because he thought that he was doing anything wrong, not because he doesn't like Ilyusha. If anything, Kolya admits, I should have come earlier. Like, it would have been better to come earlier. I've made a mistake here. But he made a mistake out of that pride, out of that childish need for approval to, you know, show off to everybody. That was what ultimately killed poor Ilyusha or at least what seems to cause him even more suffering than was necessary. So when Alyosha and, uh, and Kolya Kresopkin finally do get a chance to actually talk to each other, honestly, without sort of all of the onlookers, without Kolya trying to, you know, impress him, you know, it takes a while for Kolya to sort of put off those errors, to stop quoting Candide and various other important Russian writers, because Alyosha doesn't really care that much. Like, Alyosha does, in fact, ask, like, have you read all that stuff? Have you read On Again? Have you read, 
why are you reading all of this stuff? And you are, in fact, poisoned, corrupted, perverted by all of this reading, all of these ideas. Alyosha presents an alternative to Kolya. To be honest, to act out of his better nature, to just be generous and caring, which obviously Kolya is. Like, in that scene where Kolya finally comes to Ilyusha, he is overly generous, overly magnanimous. Yeah, by all means, let Mama have the cannon. By all means, like, he's your dog, I'll bring him by all the time. Like, by all means, yes, let's be friends. Let's, you know, love each other again. Let's be reconciled. He's overwhelmed by his good feelings, and it leads him to act out even more. Like, to put on even more airs, and to, you know, go over and above with all of this stuff. It's entirely likely that he wasn't even planning to give him the cannon. Obviously, he was really excited about the cannon, and he even promised to bring it back to the Squirts, you'll notice. Except, he doesn't, because he gets so caught up that he actually gives the cannon away. Like, he's got a good heart. But it's a good heart that's been totally bogged down with all of this intellectual nonsense. All of these books and ideas that he only understands and has in this sort of half-baked way from people who he shouldn't even trust, like Rakuten, who are themselves possibly good people corrupted by ideas. Alyosha admires Kolya not for his learning and education, but for his heart. And Kolya realizes that's all he had to do to get Alyosha's approval. And Alyosha's approval he values, because Alyosha himself is much more confident, much more capable, much more at peace with himself than either Rakuten or anyone else that we've seen. Alyosha, we get this description of, from Kelia where he says, aren't you some kind of mystic? And Alyosha sort of pushes back against that, like, who said that I was a mystic? What kind of mystic do you think that I am? People are already talking about Alyosha as though he's, you know, the the successor to Elder Zosima's legacy, he is already a holy fool, as we've said, and now, if anything, he's even holier and even more foolish. His reputation has increased in the past few months since leaving the monastery, and Kolya respects him, even reveres him, and this is a proper reverence. This is a proper hero to have for Kolya. What Alyosha represents is the alternative, the truth. He is the true hero of this novel, as we've been told by our narrator and by Dostoevsky, and Kolya recognizes it, realizes that he doesn't have to live Rakuten's life in order to get approval. He can live Alyosha's life instead. And that's a good thing. If he had, in fact, lived Alyosha's life, if he had, in fact, been honest with himself, it's possible that Ilyusha wouldn't be as sick as he is, wouldn't be as close to death as he currently is. But instead, because of all this pride, because of all of these ideas, because of all of this recklessness, because of all of these bad, proud things, these people trying to prove who they are and show off, you know, all of their accomplishments and all of their, like, intellect, Ilyusha is going to suffer and become sick and likely die. If we had followed Alyosha's track instead, if we had done what the Elder did and just loved each other, this never would have happened, much less gotten so bad for so long. Hence why this chapter is so important to the novel, despite the fact that it seems so completely tangential to everything else going on. This is the ultimate... This is an ultimate glimpse of the effects, of what is really at stake here. The, yes, 
Ivan and Dimitri and Alyosha and all of these characters, they have their drama, and it's easy to get caught up in that drama. It's easy to get excited about Ivan's big ideas and his big dramatic transformation, and it's, uh, it's exciting to get involved in Dimitri's life and all of his dissipation and all of his passion. But at the end of the day, we have to recognize there are bystanders who are looking on and changing. These actions have effects much greater than the lives that are intersecting here. Ivan is not an island, much as he wants to think that he is. And as we should definitely be rethinking now the fact that Ivan has promised to commit suicide. We should definitely be looking at a decision like that as being something that will have ripples, that will echo down into further generations, that Kolya will hear about and wonder, and ask himself if he shouldn't do the same thing. All of these ideas, all of these philosophies, all of these competing concepts of how one should live one's life, well, as Sartre would be quick to point out, when we say these things, when we do these things, we expect people to be looking on and to follow suit. If you don't, if you think somehow that there aren't going to be kids watching and emulating your actions, well, you are very mistaken. This is life-or-death stuff. As much as it is just a fun novel about big ideas, Dostoevsky is very much hammering home. No, people's lives are on the line here. Innocent bystanders, people who are much vulnerable than you are, like, people are going to suffer and die for these ideas, not because they chose them, but because you chose them, and because they're just following suit. Because they have to live with the consequences of your actions. Kolya Krasopkin made a horrible mistake. And it, the guilt of that mistake hasn't even hit him yet. Like, you can see, he's still too worried about his relationship with Alyosha to realize exactly what has happened here, exactly the consequences of his actions. The fact that Ilyusha may die because Kolya had to put on his airs. is a decent guy. He could be a good person. He has a choice to make there. But even in his childhood innocence, even in his you know youthful arrogance, the fact that he is just a kid, well, yeah, that has consequences too. You think you weren't ruining the lives of other people being a bully as a teenager, or that alternatively your decisions didn't have effects on the people around you when you were 12, 13, 14? I certainly thought that I could get away without hurting anybody, but I was very wrong. It's a complex world here. It's all interconnected. And Dostoevsky is very much emphasizing, yeah, there are consequences. People are being hurt. People are being affected. This conversation about big ideas, about socialism and communism, isn't happening in a vacuum. People will die, no matter what you choose. All the more reason to choose carefully. Which, honestly, is probably the best introduction we can get to the next section. It's time to revisit Brother Ivan. Um, section 11, book 11, is Brother Ivan Fyodorovich, and it's a long one. We're going to see Ivan finally make his way back. We're going to backtrack in time a little bit and see what he's been doing in these three months that have transpired. And we're ultimately going to see the fate of Brother Ivan and what his big ideas have brought him to. And primed as we are by everything that's gone before, we should anticipate that it isn't going to be great. 
Now this is a long section, it's a good 90 pages, it's the longest book in this book. So once again, we're going to break it in half, do half next week and half the following week. Um, so we're going to start with the easy stuff, chapters 1 through 5. We're going to start with Grushenka's and read all the way to not you, not you, but not get into any of the meetings with Smerdyakov. We'll save that for the week after that. Um, and we are coming down to the end here. My plan is that we're going to finish the Brothers Karamazov in the next four sessions. So we're going to devote two to book 11. We're going to devote the first half to the first five chapters. We're going to devote the second lecture to the second five chapters. And then for book 12, a judicial error, when we finally see the fate of Dmitri and whether or not he is convicted of the murder of his father, we're going to break that into half as well. Uh, we're going to start by reading from chapter 1, The Fatal Day, all the way to the finale of the prosecutor's speech in chapter 9. And then for our last lecture, we're going to read the rest of the book, from the end of book 12, chapters 10 to 14, as well as the epilogue, all at the same time. Um, so we are getting close to the end, folks. Four lectures left in this series. Um, after that, I don't know. I suspect what I'm going to do is I'm going to get in touch with the patrons, now that I have patrons, and start uh, getting some ideas for one-off episodes for this summer. Um, I imagine I'll be taking a pretty serious hiatus once we finish the Brothers Karamazov so I can do all the grading that I need to do because um, I've got a bunch of papers and final exams and stuff that are going to come due at the end of April and into May. Um, so fortunately that will all be very nicely timed and will be done with Dostoevsky at the same time as all of the things pick up for me. Um, but likely in June and July I'll start tackling those one-off uh, questions and ideas and we'll see see what people have to to sort of ask me about and ask me to talk about for excessive periods of time. Um, going forward, I don't know what we're going to read in the fall. Um, I am going to also start talking to the patrons about that, and hopefully this summer we'll have our voting session, and um, I already have a couple of ideas for what we might talk about. Um, so yeah, there is more Professor Kozlowski lectures to come for certain, but best to sort of check in and make sure everybody knows what's going on for a little while, um, since this one turned out a little light anyway. Uh, but we'll talk more about what the future holds in, in later lectures, and I suspect I'll spend a decent amount of uh, the last lecture in our series talking about this stuff as well. Um, so until then, happy reading, and I look forward to reading about Ivan Karamazov and his adventures with you in the near future. Farewell. Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Um, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing. And as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.